Last week we covered the majority of the passage on the Passover meal and how the Lord's Supper was initiated or started out of the Passover meal. Today we're going to deal with this a little more and see some of the great promises found in Jesus' words at this meal. Again, remember this is the night before Christ's murder. This, he will die in less than 24 hours in our passage. And the more I meditate on Jesus and his last hours before his death, I'm overwhelmed with the glory of Jesus, just looking at him and meditating on him and seeing how good he is. His words, his deeds, his attitudes are so different from this world. He is literally breathtaking. There's one subject I could study forever and ever for my entire life and never reach the end of it. And I would suggest it's the glory of Jesus Christ. He is and was will always be the finest revelation of humanity this world has ever experienced. And a revelation of God. To mankind. I'm so thankful the Bible was given to us and, and God gives us his revelation to reveal who Jesus is. And then we get this account almost, as you look at the Gospels, almost every minute of Jesus' last 24 hours are recorded. That's a cool thought. And folks, when you think on this, if you really want to know what a person's about, Look at their time. The best time to evaluate them is when they're in a huge trial. Under intense trials, you can tell what a person's all about. And it's interesting that God's Word in His providence makes sure that you have four accounts of every little detail of everything He does and thinks in His hardest time. It's as if God says, look, you want to see who Jesus is? Let me show you. And he gives you lots and lots of details. And folks, as we examine him and we look at this passage and we look at the passages to come and the weeks to come, and as you study your Bibles, you are going to find something. Jesus is stunning. He's amazing. Over and over in biblical counseling, we emphasize being satisfied with Jesus. Jesus is your greatest delight. He must be where you find your satisfaction. We must be so satisfied with Jesus that if the whole world crashes down around you, you're still okay. That's how you have to think. We keep telling you and we can't keep counseling one another and encouraging one another and exhorting one another that Jesus is enough. He's all satisfying. Isn't that what we say? No matter what happens around us, we can continually rejoice in the Lord. That's why Paul says, rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say rejoice. What does he mean? Be satisfied with the Lord Jesus. He must be sufficient to your soul and all satisfying. If we are hurt, persecuted, mistreated, sick, broke, rejected, dishonored, unloved, Lonely and single, lonely and married, burdened, we're still okay. 
You know why? Because Jesus is all satisfying. That's what this is about. You ask me, why am I going through the Gospel of Luke? And why did I go through the Gospel of John before? And why will I probably, after I finish Acts, go back and do Matthew or Mark? Because I want you to be satisfied with Christ. That is your greatest counsel. The more you know Him, the more you enjoy Him, the better off you will be. So how can we be satisfied with Christ? Well, study Him. Seek Him. Pursue Him. Pursue Him in His Word. And that's what we're doing. Sit at His feet day and night reading His revelation of Him. And folks, the more we pursue Jesus through study of Him in the Word, the more satisfied we will be. He is truly all satisfying. So, last week we saw the preparation for the Passover meal. And it was found in verses 7 through 13. We discussed that and then we moved into the participation in the Passover meal found in verses 14 to 20. Today we're going to continue this theme and look at the participation in the Passover meal and then we will move into the discussion during the Passover meal. We saw that the Passover meal was a joyful remembrance of, the God's, past, of God's past redemption of a people of Israel out of Egypt and how this was a joyful occasion, yet at the same time Jesus was there celebrating knowing that he would be the ultimate fulfillment of the Passover lamb the next night. The meal itself would have taken several hours. These would have been special times as Jesus longed to spend that time with his disciples and eat with them and enjoy this time with them. They would have sat there and he would have discussed these great truths. We know for a fact that he did John 13 through John 17. So all that upper room discourse, just beautiful news, all the glorious truth. He would have just sat there and talked to him about this for hours. And then we saw that Jesus used this meal to start the new meal of remembrance. That is the Lord's Supper. Jesus wanted his disciples to eat this Lord's Supper in remembrance of him until he returned. And we saw this meal would have been a so would have been sober for Jesus because he's saying, I'm going to be killed. I'm going to die. I'm going to be the fulfillment of what this is going to point back to. This meal. The death he would endure in less than 24 hours from then was the very thing the meal was supposed to point back to. So he starts it the night before he dies, he dies, and then we take it to point back to that, meal, that time. We saw that Jesus took the unleavened bread and he broke it at some point, and he gave thanks and broke it and shared it with his disciples. We saw some common themes or facets of the Lord's Supper were evident from the very beginning. We saw that the whole meal was all about who Jesus is and what Jesus has done. So the focus turns completely on Christ. And again, I can't say it enough. That meal is about pointing us to look at Jesus, recognize who He is. And that's what Jesus makes us or encourages us to uh, take this Lord's Supper over and over. The meal was meant to bring the believers together with one primary thought in mind, the gospel. That's what it's about. You could literally call it the gospel meal, right? It's the meal to remember the gospel. 
Second, we saw the meal included elements of giving thanks. We heard that, that, that that's where the idea of Eucharist comes, that we give thanks. And we saw that there were three main components, the celebrating of something old, establishing something new, and anticipating something future. We saw last time that celebrating something old was pointing back to the Passover, and then establishing something new was the new covenant that was going to be established. He first talked about the bread and how it pointed to his body being broken, and then he moves to the cup. And I kind of want to pick up there and, and deal with this a little bit more and talk about the new covenant a little bit. Look at Luke twenty two twenty. And in the same way, he took the cup after they had eaten, saying, This cup is poured out for you, which is poured out for you, is the new covenant in my blood. Let's look at a couple of observations on this verse. First, I want you to notice in this verse that Jesus does not say, This cup which you are drinking from is for you. In other words, it's not about necessarily here, have a little bit of this Wine, that's not the focus. The focus is on, and he's using covenant-like language. When he says, this cup which is poured out for you, this is emphasizing covenant-like talk, or covenant-like language. A covenant is a binding agreement between two or more parties. The Bible is filled with covenant relationships. Covenants are found all the way through it. Jesus used figurative language or picture language for pouring out the cup or spilling blood is the idea of when a covenant is started, it's inaugurated or, or began with blood being shed. When a covenant was started, two parties, it was between two parties, it was called cutting a covenant. Think about that for a second. Cutting a covenant. What's implied? Death, blood. Cutting. When you cut a covenant, the idea was something had to die. And blood had to be shed. And this is what Jesus is pointing to when he says, This cup which is poured out for you. The idea is something had to die. And Jesus was the one that was going to have to die in order for this new covenant to start, to be inaugurated. For example, when God made a covenant with Abraham in Genesis 15. Y'all know the story, right? There were animals, and they were all cut in two pieces and laid. And blood was spilt when those animals died, obviously. Then God walked through the trail of blood between the two halves of the animals while Abraham slept. What's the point? Abraham sleeping through the process pointed to the unconditional nature of the covenant of God that he made with Abraham. This is called a unilateral covenant. A unilateral covenant. That is, God made the covenant and emphasizes that ultimately He's the guarantor. He's the one that's going to make sure the covenant happens. He's the one that's going to guarantee it. So when Abraham sleeps, what's that say? It's all based, the covenant is all based on God accomplishing it while Abraham sleeps called a unilateral covenant. Now, we know for a fact that the Mosaic Covenant is not like that. The Mosaic Covenant was different. When God made the Mosaic Covenant, it was a bilateral covenant. What's a bilateral covenant? Two parties, both are committed, both have responsibilities. Do you understand? And what's that mean? Well, in that, 
when, the, when Moses gives the law, what did the people do? All that you say, we will do. What was that? That was the greatest lie ever made by a group of people. They said, all that you say, we will do. And then Moses threw blood on them, all over them. And so it was a bilateral covenant. Both agreed to the covenant. But the Abrahamic covenant is a unilateral covenant. And we're going to see that the, the new covenant has some of the same uh, concepts and so, same principles. Now, in the upper room, Jesus second was pointing to another unilateral covenant. As I mentioned, it's the covenant, uh, the new covenant. And notice it says, he says, the cup is poured out in my blood. It's for you and it's in my blood. The Lord was making a new covenant with his people and the covenant was sure to be fulfilled by his own blood. The blood of the covenant was Jesus' blood. Jesus was guaranteeing accomplishing this covenant. It was all on him in a sense. This covenant is going to happen because of me and what I do. He's literally saying, by myself, I am guaranteeing this covenant. I'm starting it and I'm guaranteeing it. By the way, when Jesus said, my blood, he did not mean that there was some special magical power in his blood. There are actually millions of people who stand in line daily just to touch a beam of wood in, in the Holy Land, in Israel, that the Roman Catholic Church says is the actual cross beam where Jesus died. They think by just touching that beam that they might get a little bit of the blood that remains there and they will get a special favor from God by touching that beam. Beloved, you know what this is? Idolatry. That's what it is. And the scary thing is, or the thing that's ironic about the whole thing is, it's probably not even the beam that he died on. I'm fairly sure that the Lord would make sure that all of that stuff would be gone. I would not be surprised if the tomb and all these things, all these guys that have these different tombs that they think, I wouldn't be surprised if none of them were right. <laughs> Just to make the point that what? It's not about that. It's about me. It's not about a thing. It's about me. It's not about a beam. It's not some mystical blood droplets that you touch and then you're going to get healed. Side note, beloved, we must be careful of making our relationship with God about some mystical experience. And we can do the same thing to the Lord's Supper if we're not careful. We really can. Do you think you get a special favor from God if you take the Lord's Supper? I think you need to be careful. I think you can take it and not have a heart that's worshiping God and you get nothing. Matter of fact, it might cause judgment. I think the emphasis is more in worship and remembrance of what Christ did and who he is. It's about Christ. It's not about putting a little piece of bread on your tongue. Listen. We can't touch Jesus now. No. Nope. We cannot see Jesus now. Did you know that? It's contrary to Oral Roberts, who saw a 900-foot Jesus outside of his window. We cannot physically hear Jesus speak to us now. I know, I know, I know. But there's so many people that claim it. We cannot necessarily feel Jesus. That's a wild thought. 
But folks, I want you to listen closely. Jesus is known through the scriptures. That's how God has revealed himself to us. And by the way, I just was I was I knew there was something in the Passion of the Christ. I was trying to find it about his blood dropping and somebody told me where it was. It was about Mary. She she saw the blood or something. There's all these things. Mary runs over and takes the towel. They, they were white towels, perfect white towels too, of course, and soaks up the blood from where he was beaten. Folks, what are we doing? Listen, this is all about wanting some kind of experience, something special in your relationship, right? You're wanting a feeling, an emotion. Peter says in 1 Peter 1.8, And though you have not seen him, you love him. And though you do not see him now, but believe in him, you greatly rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory. His emphasis is not on what you see. It's what you know about Christ. And that's what causes us joy. What makes me happy, what makes me joyful, is who Christ is and what he's done. Not some experience. Touching a relic does not bring a special blessing from God, and neither does having some mystical experience with God. Listen, one of the big things I hear from college students is this. I just don't feel like praying. I just don't feel like reading my Bible. I, I, I just don't, I, I just wish I had, you know, that, that intimate feeling, that emotion. You know that, and we're craving that stuff all the time, aren't we? We're wanting, that's what relationship with God is, is. I want feeling. God gave us his word. His word is good. It's all satisfying. Christ is all satisfying. I was shocked recently. I asked how many of you have studied your Bible, literally studied. I mean, you know, Spent time just studying the Word. Not reading a commentary, not reading a book, but just studying the Bible. I'm not going to make all of y'all raise your hand. I mean, just took a passage and read it and studied the passage recently at a group. And there was only like two or three that had done it in the last month. But they read lots of books. You want to experience Jesus. You ready? You want to experience Him? Study your Bibles. That's why he wrote all this stuff down, so we can know him, enjoy him, delight in him. He's good. Study your word. It's good. When Jesus says this blood, he's not saying some mystical, magical thing. He's saying, my death, my death, is the start of the new covenant. Started with my atoning death is what he was saying. This is the truth of God's word, and we trust in it. Jesus' blood did not have some magical power. His blood meant he would die to atone for sin. Everybody should say, praise God, right? Sin is atoned for through his death. And he initiated a new covenant relationship. Beloved, we worship Jesus for his work and his person. Jesus' blood being poured out was the inauguration of the new covenant. This means Jesus started a new relationship with his people, evidence 
of the start of the new covenant after Jesus' blood or his death was immediate. Look over at Matthew 27. Look how fast it happens. As soon as he dies, you see evidence of the start of the new covenant. Matthew 27, 51, it says, As soon as he dies, and behold, Matthew says, Look, the veil of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom, and the earth shook and the rocks were split. What's that? It's pointing to now the Holy Spirit is now out amongst his people. He's no longer in one place, in an isolated place where the high priest could go in only once a year. Now God is dwelling with his people. The tombs were opened and many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised. And coming out of the tomb after his resurrection, they entered the holy city and appeared to many. Now what this would be is a first fruits of the resurrection. These are first, God gave just a glimpse of the resurrection to come by raising some of the Old Testament saints to show this is what's happened now. The new covenant has started. There is no longer the sting of death. Jesus' death starts the new covenant. And again, contrary to some, new means new, not redoing or renewing. It's new means new. This new covenant is the great contrast of the old covenant, which was established by God at Sinai. Remember, I told you, the covenant God made with Israel at Sinai was a bilateral covenant. You do this, you will be blessed. You do this, you will be cursed. Right? It was a covenant that was guaranteed by both parties. And what did they do? Israel blew it. God promised to keep his side of the covenant agreement, and the people promised to keep their side of the covenant. And what did they do? All that you say... We will do the opposite. Read Judges if you want proof of that. Everything. God, you could almost read Judges and see everything that the law commanded them to do, they did the opposite of it. Almost everything. To the point of even sacrificing children at some points. The blood of the covenant was spilt and the people promised to obey, but they broke it. Now, you need proof of this? All you got to do is read your Old Testament, right? Everywhere you look, they're sinful, rebellious people. Now, as Jesus is doing this new covenant, it's before the old covenant is completely fulfilled and accomplished by Christ, correct? We understand this. Right up till the last minute, you've got some of the closest of Jesus' disciples. What are they doing? They're doing the very thing that they're not supposed to be doing. They're under the old covenant as they sit there with Jesus. And yet they disobey right then. They lack obedience even in the very moment that Jesus is discipling them. That night before he dies. You see this by the disciples. But Jesus' blood was spilt because no one could keep the old covenant. And so he inaugurated a new covenant, a unilateral covenant, a covenant based on his fullness, not our fullness. His faithfulness, not our faithfulness. God himself provided or promised to uh, fulfill this covenant by himself. Notice over in Hebrews, turn over there, Hebrews 8. 
The author of Hebrews brings up the new covenant and he contrasts it with the old covenant. And again, this is so important. This isn't the old covenant of Abraham. This is the old covenant of Moses. The covenant made at Sinai. In Hebrews 8, 6 it says, But now he has obtained a more excellent ministry by as much as he is also the mediator of a better covenant, which, is, which has been enacted on better promises. For if that first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no occasion sought for a second. It was faultless in that nobody could keep it, right? So a new covenant relationship had to be established. How did that new covenant relationship get inaugurated? Jesus died, and this starts the new covenant. Now, this new covenant was something the disciples should have known was coming, right? They read their Bibles. All the disciples should have understood it's coming. This new covenant was promised all the way through the Old Testament, but specifically, it was promised by some major prophets. Isaiah, Jeremiah, Daniel, Ezekiel. The new covenant was mentioned by these prophets, and especially by the prophet Jeremiah. And we read that in our Old Testament passage. I want you to turn over there as you're making your way to Jeremiah 31. I want to give you a little bit of background on what this new covenant is about. And I know this is kind of teachy today, but you can handle it. I'm pretty sure of it. Hang in there. You need to understand what a new covenant is and when it was promised. Jeremiah wrote concerning this new covenant around the late 500s. In 586, Judah was taken captive by the Babylonians. And Daniel, Jeremiah, and Ezekiel, those three prophets who talked about the new covenant, were all taken or a part of that time. All three men wrote of this future new covenant relationship. They spoke of the new covenant while probably being held captive in Babylon. Now, this is a map of Israel and Judah. You see the two different colors, right? That's the promised land. We see the bottom down there is Judah, and the top is Israel. At about 931, Judah and Israel, for lack of a better terms, had a civil war. It wasn't really, 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 really bad bloodshed, but they separated, okay? And those two became two separate nations, Israel, the northern tribes, the the, the uh northern ten tribes, and then Judah, which kind of took in Benjamin. They became a part of the southern tribes. This all happened back in 931 B.C. In Israel, the northern tribes were taken captive by Assyria in 722. The north and the south were, were not united and were, nev- were not a united Israel when Jesus or when Jeremiah wrote about this new covenant. Now it's very important. These two were separate and they did not agree with each other. They were not together. They had been separated and they had not come back together. Do you understand? They were two separate countries. The first one, by the time Jeremiah writes Jeremiah 31, the northern tribes were already gone into captivity for over 200 years, okay? 
that would be named the nation of Israel in that part, okay? Then there's the nation of Judah, which Jeremiah is speaking to. And Jeremiah wrote of the new covenant during the days of the captivity in Babylon. Now, he talks to both sides, though. Look at Jeremiah 31. It's very important. He says, Behold, days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. Now, that is 200 years after Israel's already been taken captive and 400 years, 400 years between the separation. They've been separated. They're two different countries. Okay? And he says, I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. By the way, shouldn't there be a house of Gentiles? We would think, right? And the house of Gentiles. But it's not there. Why did he mention Israel and Judah? That's pretty important. Because this is a first, primarily a Jewish covenant. It's primarily a Jewish covenant. And it's for Israel and Judah. Not like the covenant which I made with their fathers in the day I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. Okay, this was before they had separated. Not like that one. My covenant which they broke, although I was a husband to them, declares the Lord. But this is the covenant which I make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, and on their hearts I will write it, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. They will not teach again each man his neighbor and each man his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they will all know me. From the least of them to the greatest of them, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity and their sin I will remember no more. Thus says the Lord, who gives the sun for light by day and the fix of order of the moon and the stars for light by night, who stirs up the sea so that its waves roar. The Lord of hosts, the Lord of armies is his name. If this fixed order departs from before me, declares the Lord, then the offspring of Israel also will cease from being a nation before me. Now, let me ask you a question. Has the moon, the stars for the night, has this changed? Looks like Israel is still a nation before him, doesn't it? That has not changed. Now... How does this all fit together with the new covenant? Jesus is talking to the disciples who are very, 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 very what? Jewish. And he's saying, we're going to have the Passover meal, and then I'm going to establish the new covenant. My blood is going to be the inauguration of the new covenant. They should have been going, all right, this is great. They probably even thought, okay, now's the kingdom. Now's the kingdom. They're thinking it, but they're clueless. They don't get it, that there's going to be a time gap. There's going to be a time for the Gentiles to be included in this new covenant. Beloved, there are some key elements here. This is literally an already not yet covenant. What do I mean by that? Already not yet. Some elements of the covenant have started, and some have not yet started. Okay? The author of Hebrews makes it clear that it has been initiated. We are in the new covenant. 
Gentiles and Jews both get to participate in this new covenant. The Hebrews mentions it, right? So there's definitely aspects of the covenant that apply to Gentiles presently. For example, the new heart. Having the Spirit in us to help us and to help us walk in God's statutes, as Ezekiel 36, 26, and 27 says. Putting the law within us. And He will be our God and they will be my people. Some of it is already part. Right now, we're in the new covenant because Christ has inaugurated it. But there's also some components of this covenant that have not yet been fulfilled. Let's look at a couple. First, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. Well, ladies and gentlemen, contrary to popular belief, Israel and Judah are still scattered as a whole. They're scattered all over. They aren't all his people. As a matter of fact, they're rejecting him. You go over to Israel right now, you ask them, do you believe Jesus is your Messiah? What do they say? No. They are not his people, and he is not their God at this moment in Israel, correct? Literally, in, in Jeremiah 31, 34, it says, They will not teach again each man his neighbor and each man his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they will all know me. Wow, that's pretty inclusive, isn't it? They will all know me from the least of them to the greatest of them. Israel and Judah don't all know him, do they? This is obviously not accomplished yet. For I will forgive their iniquity and their sin I will remember no more. Now, are our sins forgiven as we trust in their Messiah? Absolutely. But have they trusted in their Messiah as a whole? No, there's a giant hardening, partial hardening that's happened, right? So, has this new covenant been inaugurated? Yes. Is it already in existence so we can have this new relationship with God? Yes. Is it already completed and fulfilled and completely accomplished? No. There are aspects of the covenant that have been, and there are aspects that haven't. So you ask me, why am I spending so much time on this stuff? Some of you are like, okay, move on. Why are you talking about this so much? Well, I think... It helps us to understand the rest of the Bible a lot better, and especially Luke 22. It helps us to understand the glory of what Jesus was accomplishing and the effect of the death and resurrection. Do you understand that Jesus' death 2,000 years ago, roughly, has effects that reach way out into the future, thousands of years later? That's huge. That means what was accomplished at that moment has eternal consequences. And when Jesus says, for I say to you, look over at Luke 22. Look back over there. Luke 22, 16. For I say to you, I shall never again eat the Passover until it's fulfilled in the kingdom of God. We know when that's going to happen. That's going to happen when the not yet is happening. Or has happened. It's yet. Yes. The new covenant includes the fulfillment of the kingdom promises for Israel. Beloved, there is an already not yet of the covenant. Yes. 
All of us who have been saved by the Lord have been brought into the joy of the new covenant. We are part of the spiritual kingdom. We are kingdom citizens. But this passage also points to a final fulfillment of the kingdom in the future also. Every believer in Jesus Christ is in the new covenant. Yes, but also God has a final fulfillment of his promises he made to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob and their descendants and the nation of Israel in the millennium. Jesus is clearly pointing to this far fulfillment in the upper room when he talks to him in Luke 22. How do I know? Because in Luke 22, he says this wild statement. Look at that, Luke 22. You are those who have stood by me in my trials, just as my Father has granted me a kingdom. I grant you, and you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom, and you will sit on thrones judging the twelve tribes of Israel. Do you think he has all this in his mind? Absolutely. He understands this already, not yet. He understands the covenant's going to start, and then there's going to be a final fulfillment of it, where the disciples, those twelve apostles, are going to sit on twelve thrones. I challenge you this week, folks. Okay, you write it down on your notes. You ready? I want you to read Ezekiel 36 to the end. From Ezekiel 36 to the end. And I want you to ask this question. When did this happen? (laughs) When did this happen? Read Ezekiel. Ask, when did this happen? Do some study. And what you're going to find is this. It hasn't happened yet. A lot of it. And if it hasn't happened yet a lot, let me ask you a question. How important is it that it does happen? Very important. You know why? Because it points to the faithfulness of God. Do you understand? I want and I know that God is faithful and trustworthy. We need to know that He is, right? And I feel like I've lost a lot of you today. Hang in there, folks. It's very important that we understand that God is faithful even when we can't understand why he's doing what he's doing and how he's doing what he's doing. Listen, we cannot change our circumstances to say, okay, this will make God's faithful. We go with what scripture says and we lean on him and he is faithful. What in the world do the 12 tribes of Israel have to do with the new covenant? if the dividing wall has been torn down in Ephesians chapter 2. Why the 12 tribes of Israel? If Ephesians chapter 2 says there's no more dividing wall. Have you ever thought of that? The answer is, just because there is no dividing wall does not mean, uh, that means that salvation is through Christ and Christ alone and that we are one people universally in Christ. Yes, But it does not mean that God does not still acknowledge and use different people, different nations in different ways. He says, my blood is poured out in the new covenant. What do you think the question should have been from the people? What do you think the disciples should have asked? When you get all this, that God's got this great plan and I'm going to die, and all of this is going to be established, and one day you're going to rule and reign on these 12, over these 12 tribes, what do you think they should have been asking? They should have, what should they have been discussing? Think about this for a second. 
They should have been doing this. If I were there, I would have, I, knowing what I know now. When? How? When's this going to happen? I want to know more. Please, you're going to die, but how can we have this covenant? Why aren't they asking these questions? Why aren't they asking these questions? I think they're clueless. They're truly clueless. And worse than that, you know what they do? After he tells them all of this, that I've got this great plan, and all of this is going to happen, what do they do, ladies and gentlemen? Instead of that, what are the twelve doing? Well, let's just take a look. Let's look at the discussion after hearing all these great truths of God's great plan for Israel. What do they do? Look over at 21 through 30. The discussion. First, notice a sin, the sinfulness of the disciple, the sinfulness of the disciples despite the sacrificial love of the Savior. Look. But behold, the hand of the one betraying me is with me, with mine on the table. What is this? God's got a great plan. Jesus is going to die. This is going to start the new covenant. This is glorious truth. I'm going to start a kingdom. And what does one of them do? He plots to kill him. Now, at first glance, we would say, okay, well, that's Judas. He's the bad guy in the group. He's the one. He's the bad one. Jesus tells them all these great truths, all this great truth about who he is and what he's going to do in this kingdom. But then look over at 24. And there arose also a dispute among them as to which one of them was regarded to be greatest. Okay, so now it's spread to all 12. They're sitting there arguing over who's the greatest or who's to be regarded as the greatest in the kingdom. By the way, this wasn't the first time they did this. They probably did this numerous times previously. They were in there after Jesus tells them all this great truth and establishes the Lord's Supper. They just took the Lord's Supper for the first time, and what's the first thing they do? They argue about who's the greatest in the kingdom. Who's to be regarded as the finest, the greatest? Well, you think it would get better, right? Nope, it doesn't. Peter goes to him, and he says to Jesus, Lord, with you, I'm ready to go both to prison and to death. Ugh. Okay, great truth. God is faithful. God's establishing this new covenant. Tell me about this new covenant. It's going to be great. Nope, I think I'm going to argue about who's the greatest. And then I'm going to make this bold proclamation that I'm going to stand firm. Within just a few hours, what does he do? He denies Jesus three times. While all the other ones run for cover. Hmm. What do we see here? What do we see? Oh, we're so weak, aren't we? I mean, we talk about glorious truths and we're sitting here fighting Aren't we, aren't we fighting? Let me ask you a question. How long did it take you after the Lord's Supper last week to sin? <laughs> Isn't it amazing? We just sit down and we celebrate the Lord's Supper and we say, God, you are good. The gospel is good. And then we go out and we say something rude to our spouse. 
or we clamor for our own position of exaltation, right? Are we any different than these disciples? In many ways, we fall into the same exact things, don't we? Folks, this is our hearts. Often we, even when we see some of the greatest truths and we hear some of the greatest things about Christ and what He's done, we turn around and we exalt ourselves and we seek for self-gratification. Here Jesus is given some of the finest words ever spoken. He says, in effect, I'm going to die to atone for your sins. Can you imagine you're sitting there talking to the guy that's literally the God-man and he says, I'm going to die for you tomorrow. I'm going to be your atonement for sin. That's what he's saying here. Because that's what the new covenant said, right? For forgiveness of sin. So they're sitting there and he says this and what's the first thing that comes out of their mouth? Well, first you got somebody betraying him, plotting. Second, you've got these guys arguing. And then you have Peter in self-reliance saying, I'm going to follow you to the end. Folks, this is how depraved we are apart from God's grace. Now, before you judge them, how much more do we do this, right? How much more of the story do you know than they knew? Think about it for a second. How much more of the Bible and, and Revelation do you have than they did? Do you understand the New Testament wasn't written? Do you understand how much more information you have than those guys that were sitting at that table? Oh, folks, why are we this way? The answer is, is we still have this body of death that we are putting to death all day long. Let me ask you a question. What kind of... What should we do? What do we do? What do we do? This is who we are. We're prone to self-exalt. We're prone to think of ourselves as better than others. We're prone to fight for our own rights. We're prone to be this way. What do we do? We can do nothing. You can't do anything. That's why Jesus died. Our hope is not found in ourselves. It's found in Christ alone. And Jesus knew it, didn't he? Now let me ask you a question. How would you respond to the disciples if you were in Jesus' spot? I mean, you just gave them all this information. What would you do? I don't know about you guys. But I think I would have scolded them pretty bad. I think I would have let them have it. Anybody else? I mean, here I am. Come on. I'm going to die for you tomorrow. And you're doing this? You betrayer, what are you doing? You're crazy. You're arguing about who's the greatest? Peter, you are saying that you're going to follow me? To the death? When I know for a fact you're going to deny him? Peter, you don't have the heart to do it. You can't do it. I would have scolded him. Look how Jesus responds. 
Look at this. Look at 28 to 30. Look at the gracious response of the Savior. You are those who have stood by me in my trials. And just as my Father has granted me a kingdom, I grant you that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom, and you will sit on thrones judging the twelve tribes of Israel. I am completely convinced this is the opposite of how I would have responded. There is no way in the planet I would have said that. Anybody? Would anybody have said that? Do you see the stark contrast? Look what he says. He says, in effect, look, instead of whacking them, he says, you have been faithful. You have persevered. And by the way, he doesn't even put in a little side note there. Not very well, but you have stood by me. Did we do that? Y'all ever done that, parents? <laughs> thank you for obeying. You don't always do it, but thank you for obeying. <laughs> thank you for obeying uh, this time. Right? He doesn't do that. He, he literally encourages them. He gives them grace. I'm shocked by it. In effect, he commends them for their perseverance with him in his trials. And yet, they're going to deny him and run in less than a day, 24 hours. He knows they're going to run from him. Why doesn't he say, well, you stood by me so far, but you're about to abandon me. Repent. <laughs> he doesn't. He encourages them. And then he says, in verse 29, this is a better translation. And I assign to you as my father assigned to me a kingdom. <laughs> now think about this for a second. Jesus has just told them for the hundredth time, I'm going to die. I'm going to die for you. And they are arguing over who is the greatest in the kingdom. And what does he say to them? <laughs> he says, I'm going to give you a kingdom. Just like the father has given me a kingdom, I'm going to give you a kingdom. That's that's totally opposite of me. Is that totally opposite of you? By the way, listen to me closely. This is what you need. I hope you get this and you had to pay attention all the way or you're going to miss it. Folks, do you understand that when you see how sinful you are, you must understand that He is there to give you grace. His grace is what causes you then to love Him and obey Him. Our problem is we give the opposite of grace when somebody sins against us. We give a whack. We give a scolding. And yet He gives them grace. And He says, Yep, you're fighting over who's the greatest in the kingdom. I'll tell you what, you're going to eat at the table with me. And you're going to rule over the 12 tribes of Israel. You're literally going to judge one of the tribes. Why does he give them good when they just were being bad? Why would he do it? Because that's who God is. And that's how God changes his people. Grace is what transforms our heart. And that's what Jesus is doing. 
Jesus has just told them he's going to die. They've just rejected it in a sense or just started arguing about themselves. And he says, I'm going to literally give you thrones judging the 12 tribes of Israel. He says, in effect, you have been faithful to me. I'm going to give you a, kim, a kingdom. I'm going to share my kingdom with you. We're going to eat joyfully at the table. You're going to intimately enjoy relationship with me. And I'm going to give, make you rulers over a portion of my kingdom. Beloved, this is what God is about. I wish I could get it. I wish I could always do it. I wish I could respond like that always. How do we do with it? How do we respond when we're mistreated? Well, I'm going to correct them with the Bible. We often think that, don't we? How many of you, <laughs> this is one of the reasons why I, I, I'm reluctant on one aspect, one aspect, Omar, of giving this list out, okay? We're giving out a list to all the guys as you leave. It's 103 things you should do for your wife to show practical love. Wonderful. Wives, you are not allowed to read it. You're not. If they do none... That doesn't matter because you're satisfied with Jesus. Men, but because you love Jesus, you want to be practical and love your wives. One of the reasons why I'm reluctant to give these kind of things is, is because then when someone doesn't do it, we say, did you read the letter? Did you read your Bible? That's not giving grace, ladies. <laughs> you understand? So I'm calling you, ladies. Don't go home and say, Men, have you read your letter yet? I'm looking forward to the goodies. You will miss the whole point. By the way, just a side note on Mother's Day for a second. Mother's Day is not in the Bible doesn't tell us to celebrate Mother's Day. Mother's Day often is something that is the hardest day of the year for many ladies. It's a very hard day. If you're a single lady and you aren't able to get married, this is the point where you go, mm, Mother's Day, great. Hopefully not. I would tell you there's an all-satisfying Jesus. Or maybe you're a mother that motherhood has not been what you wanted it to be. Or your children have not loved you the way they should as the Bible. Well, again, I would remind you, don't be looking for it. Be satisfied with Christ. He is good. Or maybe you've lost a mother. It can be a hard day, can it? I would challenge all of you to think about that as we go through these kind of days. Men, just to let you know, we won't celebrate much of a Father's Day. 
I take that back. We will celebrate Father's Day, but it will be one Father in mind. It will be our Heavenly Father. I want to challenge you. Yes, honor your father and mother, because the Bible says it. But do it out of love for your Savior and what God has done for you. Mothers and fathers, don't expect your unbelieving children to come up to you and honor you. They might do it with lip service, but until their hearts are converted, they are just doing it with lip service. Your satisfaction must not be in how your children treat you. Your satisfaction must be found in Jesus Christ alone. So, for mothers, I would challenge you. I would challenge all ladies. Are you satisfied with Jesus? If nobody recognized you today, would you be okay? Yes, because you have a new covenant relationship with the king. Fathers, should you love your wives? Absolutely. Should you do it because you feel guilted to? Should you do it because if I don't get her something, she's going to be upset with me? You know how many times I hear it in the final two weeks leading up to Mother's Day? Don't forget to get something. Oh, I hope I don't forget, I hope I don't forget to get something for her. Man, that would be horrible. Why would it be horrible? Why would it be horrible? Would it be horrible because she would be upset with you? Is there a problem with this? Would it be horrible because you didn't give her exactly what she wanted? That would be a problem too, wouldn't it? Ladies, we shouldn't present that, should we? Would it be horrible because she didn't even care about her? How about this? Both of you should be so satisfied with Jesus that you're giving each other gifts all the time. You should be loving each other all the time and it should not be, oh, let's make sure on that one day we love each other. Does that make sense? I don't think we're satisfied with Jesus enough. Because if we were satisfied with Jesus... Love would show continuously all the time. We'd be pouring out grace to each other. But I think we are all too much like those disciples in the upper room that just heard the good news. Focused on ourselves, aren't we? That's why Jesus came. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this day. Thank you for grace. Thank you for giving us grace when we deserve wrath. Thank you for Christ, who is our sacrifice. Thank you for loving us first. Father, we pray that we will love as you have loved. As your word says, you give a new commandment that we love one another as you have loved us. Father, we pray that you help us to love like you do, reminding us of you. We pray all this in the matchless name of Jesus our Savior. Amen.